Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about something that became increasingly relevant in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is, what happens to children who experience the death of a loved one, particularly a parent or a caregiver. In today's podcast, we're going to talk about something that became increasingly relevant in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. That is, what happens to children who experience the death of a loved one, particularly a parent or a caregiver. According to Drs. Rachel Kenter and Julie Kaplaw, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, as many as 4% of young people in high-income countries like the U.S. are estimated to experience parental bereavement. As we will learn today, the great majority of bereaved children have good outcomes and go on to do well in their lives, particularly if they receive adequate support. On the flip side, Kenter and Kaplaw found that without emotional supports, these children and adolescents face unique emotional and behavioral challenges and are susceptible to many secondary adversities later in life. These might include heightened depressive and PTSD symptoms, higher rates of alcohol dependence, use of illicit drugs, and delinquent behaviors during the initial bereavement and later in life two to four times greater risk of dying by suicide compared to their non-bereaved peers, and adverse physical health effects such as fatigue, insomnia, headaches, and muscle pain. This issue has become much more urgent following a global pandemic that has taken the lives of so many. And given the political controversy surrounding COVID, the children left behind are vulnerable to social stigma. According to Dr. Dan Treglia from the University of Pennsylvania, there are an estimated 200,000 children in the U.S. who've lost a parent or caregiver to COVID-19, and that realistically, the numbers are likely quite a bit higher. Dr. Treglia reports, children who lose parents or caregivers are more likely to experience PTSD and depression, My worry is that those who feel stigmatized by the COVID-19 deaths won't admit what their parent or caregiver died of, and those kids need care. Dr. Charles Nelson from Harvard Medical School agrees, telling Eliza Griswold of The New Yorker, we don't know who these kids are. We need to find a way to track these kids and find out how they are doing. 
these kids are going to be suffering for years. Today we have the great fortune of speaking with Lauren Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the clinical director of Child and Adolescent Services at Our House. Our House is a nonprofit organization that provides grief support following the death of a loved one, believing that the bereavement experience deserves greater understanding and acceptance. Specifically, they provide grief support groups to adults, teens, children, and toddlers geared to the age of the griever and the relationship to the person who died. So welcome, Lauren. Um, I'm very grateful to have you here today. I've known of our house for actually most of my career. I referred a young client that I had decades ago um, when I was uh, practi practicing at Stewart House. I referred a client of mine to our house. Um, we had not previously met until this morning. So for my sake and the sake of our listeners, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. Well, and um, thank you for inviting me to be here today. I'm, it's real. I feel lucky to have a chance to talk about our work with you, um, Tricia. So um, I've been running the program probably as long as you've known about our program. In fact, I just celebrated a 20-year anniversary as the clinical director of the children's program at our house. I'm a social Congratulations. worker. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's a really long time. Um, and um, our house, we're in our 29th year serving Los Angeles as a, you could call us a full service grief support center. We serve people as young as four all across the lifespan who've experienced a death of someone close. And we're not a mental health center. We don't do therapy at our house, which is really one of the biggest misconceptions about what we do. We do grief support um, groups and, and we do um, a lot of educational programs for other clinicians in the community to help them learn how to serve the grievers in their own settings and and um, a lot of other types of services as well, but no therapy. And I can tell you later why that is. Thank you. You know, Lauren, as a, as a parent, I'm a parent of 19-year-old twins. Um, one of my greatest fears is, of course, something happening to one of my sons. But right behind that is something happening to me before they're fully grown. I guess they are fully grown. They're 19. But you know what I mean. Before they're mm -hmm. out in the world and don't really need yeah. me so much anymore. And it's tragic for a lot of people, I think, to think of a young child experiencing the loss of a caregiver or really any loved one for that matter. And so if you could start, please, with how does a child's grief process differ from adult bereavement? Okay, that, it's such an important question to ask because the two are so completely different. And, and I think that the general public is still really confused by that. Um, adults or parents especially are so, um, they're so concerned when their children experience a death of someone close, whether it's a parent, the child's sibling or a grandparent, 
they can't tolerate seeing their own children in pain. And so their first, um, the first instinct is to try and fix it. And they want to throw their children into therapy, um, not because the child needs therapy, but because the parent can't, or guardian can't tolerate seeing their own child in pain and their, tolerate their own pain. But children don't necessarily need to be in therapy just because they're grieving. Um, and, and so that's one of the first things that I tell parents is that Kids don't necessarily need to be in therapy. They need they need a lot of other things, which you'll probably ask me about what they need. <laughs> but um, in the first couple of months, an adult shows their grief on the outside. You know, they're crying. They're having trouble with their day-to-day functioning. They're not afraid to show their grief um, in the workplace. You know, everywhere they go, you can see it on their faces. Sure. And that's the same for men and women in our society. Um but um, children aren't like that. They they appear pretty much as though nothing is really going on most of the time. And they're coping primarily by distracting themselves with things like their video games and they're playing with their friends. And even going to school is a great distraction for them, which they actually really need in the first few months are because they're, um, you know, they're, they're trying to make sense of what's going on at home and all that intensity going on with their grownups is too much for the kids. So they need, they need to just kind of distance from it a little and distract themselves from that with those, with those natural coping skills, like their friends and their video games. Um, the other big thing that's really different for kids, I think, and even as long as the first six or seven months is they're going to hide their grief from their grownups because they don't want to overwhelm them. Mm -hmm. As an adult, the adult looks so fragile, especially if a parent, the other parent or sibling of the child has died. The adult looks so fragile, like they're going to just fall into a million pieces at any moment that the child doesn't want to add to the burden that their um, their caregiver is already experiencing. So the last thing they want to do is break down in front of them and ask to get their the child's own needs met. They don't want to do that. They want to, on the other hand, caretake for the grown-up so it's almost like a flip-flop happens the child is actually very caretaking of the adult or just keeps all of their feelings to themselves so as not to overwhelm their caregiver and and it's actually um it's much to the chagrin of the grown-up because they're saying, why isn't my child coming to me? Why don't they ever talk to me about their feelings? And Are they not mourning? Yeah. How come they're not sad that their dad or their sister died? And I'm saying they are sad. They just don't want to overwhelm you with their sadness because they see how, how, how much you're struggling with this. 
So it isn't until they can perceive that their grown-up is beginning to adapt to their life without the person who died. And that's often not until after the first anniversary of the death that then the child it um, can then begin to, you know, show on the outside all of the pain that they've been hiding. Do we want to alter that dynamic? I mean, I understand why a child, why that happens. I think that's, that's common sense um, in lots of ways, but that doesn't necessarily feel like the healthiest thing for that child. Um, so while we say that's a natural process, I'm not sure that's really the one that we would hope for for that child. We'd want them to be able to express their feelings somewhere. Yeah, well, you can't change how your child is grieving. You can only change yourself as a parent. Mm, so course. like if we use you as an example, Trisha, you know, you couldn't say to your twins, um, hey, you guys, it's okay to cry, you know, um, and, you, and make them cry, right? But you could say, mommy's here for you. I'm strong enough to handle your grief and then have your actions match your words. Like they catch you grieving and you say, yeah, of course I am sad right now because grandma died, but I, but I, I just need a minute and then we can go outside and play or then we can go and make dinner or then we can go to the park. So, so uh, you're showing them that you're there for them. That, that makes sense. Yeah, that does. You know, I, I think one of the dynamics that come into play, and so clearly by what you're saying right now is, you know, parents are supposed to take care of their children. And so, you know, one of the issues I think, too, with parental death is, apart from the, just the obvious loss, it can cause quite a bit of destabilization in the family. Like, I think of a client that, well, I supervised this client years ago. I didn't, they weren't mine directly, but um, I supervised a therapist who was seeing uh -huh. this client. He uh, had a single dad. Uh, mom was out of the picture, and dad had double kidney failure, and it became mm -hmm. clear that he was going to pass. And so he got his son into treatment with us. And when he did die, this boy had to enter the foster care system. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about a total life destabilization yeah. um, while grieving. So how much does that potentially come into play when a, a child is grieving? Well, those are what we call secondary losses, like changes to their home, changes to their school, changes to their caregiver after school, and even who they live with. So those are very common, you know, and um, and for a child who has to go into foster care, that's sort of like on 10, you know, that's hmm. the most extreme example that you just gave. But even in, um, you know, in a lot of families where there was a single parent, then the child may go and live with grandma now, you know, and have to share a room with their cousins instead of have their own room, you know, and, and there's a lot of that, a lot of that change in their day-to-day -day routine when the death occurs. So, um, you know, and changes in their um, in income a lot. This year, like uh, the last few years during the pandemic, 
um, where we had so much economic instability across the board. You know, when you had a death in the family, we saw a lot of a lot more of that in our grieving families um, really being impacted when a person who was providing some of the income for the family died. Then that real hardship um, of not um, that ensued when that income was now gone. So it's double, triple whammies and yeah, of change yeah. that these children have to adapt to. I want to get back to your ear to an earlier question. Please, that please, you asked please. Me. So you used the word lost just now as a verb instead of saying died. Uh -huh. So when we so let's go back to like one of the main differences between how kids grieve and how adults grieve. Oh, please. Right. So so for children, it you know, I talked first about how, you know, they they don't show their grief on the outside. So you know, it used to be people didn't think they were grieving because they're just playing, you know, mm -hmm. and they look like they're fine. Right. But um, it's also that depending on their develop stage of cognitive development, their ability to understand, um, you know, death in in its true sense, like what what it means when someone dies is going to vary depending on the age of the child. So like at our house where we work and this is true in a lot of the grief support centers in the country, we have a um, one of our our parts of our model is that we always use the word died instead of a euphemism for death because a euphemism like lost can mean other things besides hmm. died or a euphemism like passed or passed away is very culturally specific. So if I'm doing a grief group with seven or eight kids, some of those children won't have ever heard that word past, but all of the kids in the group, by the time they start our program, know what the word died means. And that died means that somebody's body stopped working and they can't eat anymore or they don't, um, you know, they can't move anymore. They don't go to the bathroom anymore, mm -hmm. you know, and and we'll never see them alive again. So we so so it's really important, you know, for people to use that word died. And most therapists are afraid to use that word. And it's very important for therapists to use that word because it really is a signal to the children that this is a place where it's okay to talk about death. And so when we check in with our kids who are also in therapy and all our programs, because we have our grief camp program also, which we just finished. Um, and, you know, we say to them, so what are you doing in in therapy? You know, do you ever talk about your dad who died? And they're like, no. And I'm like, really? Your therapist never asks you how is it going since, you know, this week without your dad? And they're like, no. You know, the therapists are waiting for the kids to bring it up. And kids wait for the grown up to bring it up. Of course. The children take their cues from their adult. And, and then, then you add the layer of a therapist who isn't afraid to even talk about death or say the word died because they think it's too harsh for children to hear, which is not true at all. 
Um, you know, and you've got a child who's like, oh, my therapist is afraid to talk about my dad who died. I better not talk about it here. That's so fascinating that, and I'm so glad you called me on this actually, because, and I'm amused because at myself, because I tell in my trainings all the time, you know, my specialty when I still saw clients was children who were sexually abused. And I say all the time, kids aren't gonna disclose their story to you if they think you can't handle it. You have to use the words. Yeah. Like use the words sexual or whatever words. Yeah are appropriate for the case, but you have to use the words. And I say that in my trainings about assessing for suicide as well. You have to use the words suicide or so it's funny to me that I did the whole thing that my soapbox, I actually did it here in this conversation about death. So, well, it's not surprising to me, Trisha, because death is the last taboo subject that we have, even after the pandemic, where every commercial practically for the first year and a half of the pandemic talked about death, you know, in every news story, it still is hard for you to say the word died. So it just shows you how deeply um, entrenched that is in our, in people's psyches. Right. Right. You know, we don't talk about death, you know, that people can't handle it, but it's not the case. So even kids, and then that furthermore, even kids as young as four that have joined our program have to know the cause of death. Okay. So if if mommy killed herself, if mommy you you know overdosed and the death is due to an overdose or suicide, you know they all have to be told the true cause of death. And if their adult tells, oh we're not we can't tell them that we just say it's a heart attack or or um, you know they make up something instead, then we have to say to them, well. We offer to help tell the child the truth. Um, And if they're still not ready to do that, then we have to say, well, come back to us when you're ready, because we're not going to collude with the family in lying to their child. Mm -hmm. You know, plus we can't help them with the very first task of mourning, which is, you know, to accept the reality of the death. And for children, that means understanding how their person died. Yeah, that makes sense. But I want to talk about very young children for a second. And you've mentioned starting with four, but, and again, I'm going to tell a personal story. We all have personal stories as they relate to death. But some years ago, I was at, tragically at a funeral for uh, a mother who died during childbirth. And she left behind a newborn who was thankfully healthy, but also a two-year-old. And I was at the funeral, and this two-year-old was walking around the funeral and saying under his breath, Mama, he was looking for his mom. And to me, still today, you know, decades later, it breaks my heart to think Mm -hmm. of that. And I remember watching him as a therapist and thinking, he's two. How is this child processing this, and how does he understand that his mom didn't somehow just abandon him. Right. And so, you know, 
at what age do children start to understand death and that it's permanent and that it's, you know, what do we do with the really little ones? Yeah, I mean, at his age, he can't help but feel that he was abandoned and that he did something wrong, that it's his fault, that his mom isn't there for him. And there's a part of him that's always going to feel that way, you know, that's going to have to work on that for a really, really, really long time, you know, in his therapy and stuff. But, um, you know, and telling him it's not your fault that mommy's died you know, isn't really going to help with that feeling when he's young. What is going to help is helping him understand what happened to his mom, that mom died, you know, because she had a very bad disease called cancer or a bad guy shot her with a gun or, you know, she was driving in a truck went through the inner, you know, went through the red light and hit her car and she was hurt so badly that the doctors couldn't help her and she died, you know, and repeating that story. And then what happens beyond that is every time that little two-year-old enters the next stage of cognitive development, asking him or her, are giving them an opportunity to revisit the story, their story, and say, do you have any questions now about what happened to your mom? Because they're, they're, with their brain development, they're going to have more questions about it. So what we always train our volunteers, our group leaders, is to say, you know, do, and therapists, when I train therapists, I say, ask the child, do you have any questions? And whatever the question is, that is how we determine what is an age appropriate amount of information to give that child. So, for example, if the two year old's mommy had ended her own life, just say, you know, mommy had was so, 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 so sad that she didn't want to live anymore. So she ended her life. Now that kid isn't going to understand any of that except, but that, and that means that mommy isn't going to come home anymore. We'll never see her again anymore, but she loved you very, very much. And she's still with you in in your heart and if the family was religious you could share a religious belief like and she's watching over us from you know from heaven if that's their belief so then but then a few years later revisit it you know mommy had a disease on the inside called depression and that's what made her brain so so sick that she she felt so unhappy that she didn't want to be alive anymore and then later the child might want to know how she did it but at two and at four they're not going to say well how did she do it right of course they're not ready to ask that question so there's no need to tell them until the child says well how did she do it so i i just want to make sure i'm understanding this because this is sort of we're merging two questions, but I, I think it's so fascinating. So really, even with these very young children who may not yet understand death, it's very important to use concrete 
age yes. appropriate words and say and yeah. make it very clear you're explaining death even if you're not explaining death mommy was really sick and she couldn't get better and her body right. just stopped working and mommy's gone and we're never going to see mommy again right and we try not to say sick Okay. And even not sick, the name of the disease, okay. uh, it's depression or it's cancer, because everybody gets sick. Okay. Everybody gets sick. So that's too big. But what you asked, when do they understand permanence? Mm -hmm. So, you know, according to the developmental psychologists, they put that that time frame, you know, they try and pin it on like, you know, around somewhere between five and seven, you know, if you have a person who dies, you're going to understand that they're not coming back maybe a little bit sooner than a child who's never experienced a death, right? I've seen, though, some of our kids, one child I worked with who her mom had died a violent death and it it wasn't until she was 7 that she really understood that death meant her mom was never coming home again which is much later than piaget um puts that ability so it's different for different kids diff you know you, these these things are not written in stone Sure, of course. We all we all grow and develop differently, I guess. So that makes sense. Um, yeah. But a real important takeaway is those conversations you have, even with the little ones. Yeah, and and if you have a few kids in the room, the littlest one, they're only going to be able to understand, you know, X amount of what's being said, and and then. You know, like say you're talking to the two-year-old and the six-year-old, then and you say, "Do you have any other questions?" The two-year-old's going to be like, um, "Nope, can I go play now?" And they'll go and play, and the six-year-old might say, "Well, why can't Grandpa come home? Or when can I see Grandpa again?" So that shows you what's age appropriate for the six-year-old. So make that you know then they need more information and the other one doesn't. Well, what about teenagers? We haven't really talked about them. And yes. it's such a complicated time of life. Like I wouldn't be a yeah. teenager again to save my life. And, you know, <laughs> what are the risks to teens who, <laughs> I'm looking at my questions here and I wrote experiencing loss, but I've now remembered not to use the word loss. Well, it is so. a loss. <laughs> it is a loss. Yeah, we did. What I had said to you was try not to use it as a verb. It is a loss, Tricia. I see. The teens are very much at risk. I just was on the phone with somebody that today, and you know, a lot of times there's, like you said earlier, there's this destabilization in the family, and um, the surviving parent loses the ability to parent effectively. The kids are not listening, and that's the worst thing in the world. What they need is they need a, a, their parent to be very structured and set very clear boundaries and reestablish routines and structure to help them regain the sense that the world is a somewhat safe and predictable place. Now, with teens, the, the risk when the world is not um, structured for them is very high because 
the way they're going to start to cope with their pain can be very, very dangerous the older they get because they have access. And, um, you know, so we, we as parents and grandparents and therapists need to be checking in all the time with our, our teens and that age range is, it's, it keeps extending younger and younger. How are you coping with the pain of your grief? Because are they doing self-harming behaviors? Are they using drug and alcohol? Are they um, engaging in high-risk behaviors that are you know, not classically self-harm like um, in the town I grew up in? Uh-huh. You know, we would drive with the lights off in our car you know, down the street in the dark. And that was like really high risk behavior. You know, that kind of thing is dangerous. So the, with the teens, um, that's, that's one of the really dangerous things there. Their development can get derailed really easily. So a child who's like on this course to go in this one direction often gets sucked back in by the family system to to assume per- parenting responsibilities um, to become a wage earner and so their their own individual development gets derailed right so that's a risk factor and there's so many, like, back-to-back-to-back to back to back milestones as a teenager, too, right? Mm-hmm. Your driver's license, your first dance, your first kiss, college applications, high school graduation, all of those things. It feels like you would get clobbered over the head over and over again about how that parent's not there for these milestones. Yeah, but most kids do really well. Okay. You know, if they have, if they have an adult who is there for them. They do really well. Yesterday I trained a couple of alumni of our program to become volunteers. And I'm always struck by how magnificently these kids Mm -hmm. come through. They're young. They're only 10th graders, these two. And the wisdom that they've acquired already at this age, at 16, they know more about the grief process than most therapists, you know, because they went through it and they can articulate it. And, and um, you know, it's not just resilience. It's so much more than resilience. It's, it's depth and it's wisdom and empathy and, you know, that, it's what David Kessler calls, you know, he talks about in his book, um, the sixth stage. It's like making meaning of your loss, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that these 10th graders, they they can make such meaning of the death of their parent when they were younger, you know, in these beautiful ways. And I that's one of the things that has been most meaningful for me um, is watching these kids grow up and some of them are doctors now wow. that I knew. And like one young man um, whose mom died of cancer, I saw his wedding announcement in the New York Times, and he went on to become an oncologist. Wow. And I know wow. he did that in his mom's memory. Of course. You know, and I just wanted to cry when I saw that, you know, and. 
So these they have that capacity to sure. to just go on and lead really just amazing lives and make something really profound out of the loss. Exactly. You know, how does the cause of death impact the processing of the loss? I mean, it feels like there there would mostly be a big difference between a violent death or a suicide or cancer where you've watched them, you know, so ill for so many years. And yeah. how does the cause of death play into, into their grief? There's a lot of studies about that. You know, there's definitely studies about how the, the circumstances influence. And, you know, in my experience, the kids, you know, the, the research I've seen shows that um, cancer deaths and suicide deaths are the hardest for kids mm -hmm. to to um, to grieve, you know, and to to adjust to. But and then but I've seen it play out, too, that a lot of the adults, they'll call us right after their or before their spouse dies. They'll call us while their loved one is like on in the cancer, you know, in hospice before they've even died. And they'll be like, how can I get my kid in your program? You know, they're like all ready to get them in and their their spouse is not even dead yet. And I'm like, don't worry, you know, don't worry. We'll be here for you, blah, blah, blah. And then time and time again, the kids don't want to come anywhere near us. Hmm. And it's because, like you just speculated, they've been, they're tired. They've been watching for four years, their mom or their dad. And it's almost always the mom watching them waste away for four years in front of their eyes, going through these treatments. It's like the kids in Bosnia or now in, um, you know, in you, the Ukraine, mm -hmm. you know, watching people go through war, you know, for there it's months, it's not years yet, but all these places, Afghanistan, where it's repeated trauma over time. It's the same thing with cancer. They just want to be done when the death happens. They don't want to talk about it. They want their life to get back to normal. We do have kids in group, of course, and at, and at camp. But a lot of them, they don't want to have to talk about it. They want life to get back to normal. Uh, the suicide survivors... They're confused. They're like, I don't understand why he did it. He wasn't depressed. You say it was because of depression, but he was always so fun. He wasn't depressed, you know, because the, the grown-up hid the depression really well, or it came on suddenly like a major depressive episode. So they're struggling to understand that. And the the overdose deaths we've got a lot of them. the The opioid crisis finally hit Los Angeles, and um, those kids are just like, I should have took her pills away. I should have took her drugs away. I should have took the bottles away, and they just want to blame themselves. And so that's different than in the other deaths. Of course, of course. A 
simple Google search raises any number of links on how to assist a child who is grieving the loss of a loved one. But bereavement in children raises so many questions and pushes so many buttons. Some of them are immediate and practical. How to explain death and should the child attend the funeral? And some of them are long-term and even lifelong. Do we memorialize the deceased parent? Do we talk about the afterlife? Rachel Emke from Childmind writes, As a parent, you can't protect a child from the pain of loss, but you can help them feel safe. And by allowing and encouraging them to express feelings, you can help build healthy coping skills that will serve them well into the future. According to an American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Facts for Families guide, Parents should be aware of normal childhood responses to a death in the family, as well as signs when a child is having difficulty coping with grief. It is normal during the weeks following the death for some children to feel immediate grief or persist in the belief that the family member is still alive. However, long-term denial of the death or avoidance of grief can be emotionally unhealthy and lead to more problems. The research is clear that the responses of the adults around a grieving child have a foundational impact on how well that child does in managing and adapting to their loss, but it isn't easy. So recognizing, you know, as you've said here, every child's different, every circumstances is, are different, you know, let's say we have parents and caregivers listening. Um, what advice do we give to them if they're trying to help their child cope with the death of a loved one? You know, each grieving child and person is going to grieve in their own way. You know, so I don't. I I I am reluctant to make any statements that could be taken as gospel, you know, right. make generalizations. Because even in a family, if you have three kids, they're all going to have different needs. So maybe two of them would benefit from a grief group, but one of them needs therapy, or one of them just is going to play football and and not do anything because football is their life, you know? But they're going to need to be in therapy in college because they right. didn't deal with it in high school, right? Um, so you got to look at each person as a unique individual and figure out what each child needs. It's not, it's not the same for each. When, so what we know, like, that the majority of grieving children do really well with just a peer support type of program like what we offer. So that means like a grief support group either offered at their school or like what we offer. And that can be a grief group or grief camp, right? So, and the reason those are so effective is they it reduces the isolation that grieving kids and teens experience every day at school that feeling that that they're 
that they're the only ones that their friends don't understand. They can't talk about it with their friends because they don't want to be different because being different is also talk about risky. Mm -hmm. You can get teased, you can get bullied, you get left out. Um, So grief group or camp reduces that stigma, that isolation, that feeling that life is unfair, that dealt you the unfair card. And they learn that what they're feeling and thinking is natural and normal for people in that situation. So there's real value in that. And you just can't get that in one-on-one therapy. You know, I read, I everything I read um, in preparing for today supported 100% what you just said. Um, and of course, you're the expert, so that doesn't surprise me. But every single thing that I read is that um, for most bereaved children, a support group is the preferred course of action. It's um, because of that isolation that most kids do really well if they get those services. Um, so how do you know then when you should send your child to a support group? or when you should find more intensive treatment, or if you should just go let them play football. (laughs) (laughs) So there are kids that definitely need therapy. So let's say the number went up during the pandemic. Um, You know, if I'll say conservatively 20%, it's probably less than that, but... If they need therapy, it's because they they have post-traumatic stress disorder in addition to their grief. And I'm not going to talk about any other kind of mental illness. They might be depressed, clinically depressed, not, oh, I'm so depressed. I didn't get to go out with my friends last night, but clinically depressed. Or very anxious, meaning they don't want to leave the house on the weekend. They're afraid afraid to be away from their caregiver. They can't focus in school. They're losing weight or gaining too much weight. You know, those kinds of major. So at least two of those major problems in their day-to-day adjustment. You okay. know, then and then they they need a really good referral because most therapists don't know how to touch grief. They don't. They really don't. I, as a therapist, I support that. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, and we dance around it, I think. We know how to do trauma, but we don't know how to do grief. Yeah, yeah. so they could start with the trauma, you know, that would be helpful, but don't forget to talk about the death, right. you know, and how their life is without the person who died. So apart from that, like I'll, let's speak to the guidance center. You know, we have close to 200 staff. We treat 3,200 wow. kids a year. Wow. Um, I guarantee you, I know we have kids on our caseload who've experienced that the death of someone they love. So if we're talking to therapists out there listening and they get a bereaved child on their caseload, what should they do to ensure they're providing the best care to that child? 
They should start out in the intake by asking, what deaths have you experienced? Mm. So on the very first day, it should be on your intake forms, and that question should be asked during the intake. And I I have never, ever asked a counseling center and got the answer, yes, we asked that question at intake. We do not specifically ask that question at intake. I mean, we, we ask, of course, about family history, but it's not. Don't be afraid to ask death and then say, oh, tell me about that. What do you remember about that when your grandpa died? You know, so because the, the truth is, is, you know, and a lot of the problems later stem from unresolved grief unrecognized um grief and 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 by the time kids get to high school they're they're now accumulating in urban areas like where you are in redondo you know you've got kids by high school that have had five deaths you know grand great grandpa and great uncle and auntie and then their cousin and one of their best friends Mm -hmm by the time they graduate high school, and if not a parent or guardian. In California, one out of 18 kids have a parent or sibling die by the time they graduate high school. Wow. The number keeps inching inching up. In the rest of the country, it's much worse. One out of 14, 13 or 14 uh, but it, it's getting worse in L.A. Now, it's going to be even worse when we get the statistics for 2021. The, they haven't come in yet. Sure, because of COVID, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, but I know just like... Ask, I, just ask, yeah. you know, and include that in your treatment plan. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I feel like that's um, a really powerful under, underpinning of this whole conversation is to... Uh, for the therapists or the parents really to be braver and be more upfront and to ask these questions, to talk about the death. To, um, I feel like my, my big takeaway is to, <laughs> you know, explore my own reluctance to use those words and to have those conversations, but then to, that's the best way we can help these kids is to just be really upfront. Yeah, and include the grown-up in the treatment. Sure. Because the whole family system needs to be able to talk about it. Like when people call us and ask for therapy referrals, I'm like, don't put your kid in therapy. They don't need to have a great relationship with a therapist one hour a week. Go with them. You need to improve. You need to build on your family relationship and your communication and talk about what it's like now that your husband died or now that your wife died or your daughter died, you know, and learn how you're going to cope with this together as a family. And the therapist can help you talk about these things because they're not talking about it at home. They're all grieving alone in their rooms. Right. Even on the big days, they're not talking about it, like on birthdays and Christmas and stuff. So family sessions are really important for therapists to conduct regularly. That makes sense. 
Um, could you share, you, you, you've touched on some. I mean, you, I feel like this, despite the fact that we're talking about death, you, this has been such a conversation of hope from my perspective, but could you share a particular success story with us? Well, your whole face just lit up. I mean, there's so many, like that one that I, it just brought tears to my eyes when I told you about that doctor. I wish you would call me, it, um, the young man who just got married, um, who became the oncologist here in L.A. I would love to tell him how much that meant to me. He volunteered for us briefly before he went off to medical school, um, I mean, I know a family, four little kids, they ranged in age from five to 12 when their dad died. And they're all like professionals now. And and most of them volunteered for us, you know, before they, even as young adults, and they're all just doing beautifully. And I'm going to share something with you. Uh, there's I, I have to, after you mentioned the young man who became an oncologist, but um, we, my family, we have someone who's very dear in our lives, who's been living with um, cancer for about 10 years. Um, it's been terminal for the last handful of those. Um, and my sons have, have watched this process, um, and they love this person very much as I do. And... One of my sons is studying pre-med in school right now, and he's decided he wants to be an oncologist. Aww. And he said that um, the reason is because of our friend, um, and said that, well, oncologists gave us time with her, and I would like to give other families the gift of time. And so that Aww. makes me That's think so of sweet. your your story yes that yeah. you pay it forward right you you uh -huh. honor that person yeah yeah that's very sweet and and for your sons when um when your friend dies um there's a really lovely organization that they have grief groups at college campuses okay yeah called Mo it's called um uh, actively moving forward. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and if they don't have a group there, they um, the kids can contact this organization and they'll help them organize a grief group at their college. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, because that could be really helpful for them. Um, young adults fall through the cracks. They leave home, and then if that death happens between 9 and 25, mm -hmm. they really fall through the cracks. They're really big kids still. And, of course. But they're out of that sort of uh, kind of away from home, so you can't, like, drag them in. And no right. one will talk to them unless they initiate the call themselves. Right, of course. So the college-based grief groups are really important. Thank you. I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that with us um, and with me in particular. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I always end every single one of these podcasts, I end them on a note of hope. Um, that's our whole mantra at the Guidance Center, that we're a place of hope. Despite the sad stories we hear, we get to watch people thrive at the end of the yeah. day, right? You yeah. work with just 
really sad stories. And what gives you hope to continue doing this, this work? Our work is not sad. It's not sad, our work, you know, because what we see, we see just the relief when we bring kids together that we, it's almost like they can exhale. They can, mm -hmm. they can be themselves. Like we were at camp, um, last weekend, our camp is called Camp Aaron and, um, it's one of a national network of grief support camps and, and, you know, they, they process their grief in the grief activities, but we also have fun activities and <laughs> it was so hot. Um, you know, we had these water fun play things. It was, and they had so much fun <laughs> that just like getting completely soaking wet, their clothes were soaking wet. They just have so much fun together. And, and it's so, it's just, it's just so wonderful for us to, that we can provide a safe space for kids to just be kids you know, it's not sad. It's like, it's incredible to that, to ha be able to provide something that's so helpful to families and then to watch them like these two girls I trained yesterday come back to us and then they turn around and they give back. You know, it's not sad at all. No, <laughs> it's I, the opposite of sad. I, I love that so much. You have no idea how appreciative I am of you right now and of the work that you guys do and of this conversation. So thank just Thanks. thank you so much. I feel like I've learned a huge amount from you. So I thank you for your expertise, for your sharing your experience and um, helping us to talk about something that most of us don't feel comfortable talking about. So, so thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And if anybody wants to volunteer, we need we really need group leaders, badly volunteers, so they can contact us. Yeah, directly at our house. Yeah, on our website, there's a link to find out about volunteering. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. I'm glad you got okay. to put that out too. Thanks for having me. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Tricia Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.